0: Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Five years ago today, I was sitting in my recliner at home watching the Titans play football after church. And my wife asked me if I wanted a cup of coffee. And of course, I said, yeah, yeah, that's so nice. I thought, wow, she really, she knows me well few minutes later, she brings me the cup of coffee, and I was just going to, you know, kind of grab it. Thanks, babe. Keep drinking and watch the game. But I noticed she was standing there looking at me kind of funny. So I looked at the coffee cup, and I thought, is she trying to poison me? Or and written on the coffee cup, it said, we're thankful for Daddy. I thought, huh, that's a weird thing to put on a coffee cup. <laughs> then I looked at Amber, and I realized that she had written that on the coffee cup. She had this smile on her face. And I realized it was a Sunday after Thanksgiving. thus the thankful part. And instead of I, it said we. And it said Daddy. And I thought, that's not my name. And that's when it all clicked. And somebody else just got it. That's when it all clicked into place. I'm glad I'm not the only one who was struggling. Because that's how Amber told me she was pregnant with Charlotte. In that moment, boy, that was a little unexpected for me. It wasn't... Completely unexpected because I do know how that happens. But I was not expecting that news on that day in that moment. Sometimes unexpected moments can be some of life's greatest blessings. The unexpected can be exciting. It can really shake things up. And that's the way. The birth of Jesus, that story, plays out in the Gospels. This story is filled with unexpected twists and turns. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good, and sometimes it's downright strange. This is an exciting story filled with hope and surprise. But if you're like me and you grew up in church or you've been in church for some time, you hear these same stories every year, and they become the opposite. They become expected. Preachers going to preach these passages, and we're going to sing these songs, and they're going to have the church decorated. This is all part of the annual Advent routine. And pretty soon, we find this story becoming mundane, typical, maybe even boring. And that's why I love our Advent theme this year. You see it on the screen. It's screen, it's, it's no eye had seen. comes from a verse in 1 Corinthians 2.9 where Paul writes, What no eye has seen nor ear, ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and he's speaking of this mystery of what God's done in Christ. And he's telling us that who Jesus is and what he did is so incredible, we can't even imagine it. Like, no one could have made this up or just designed it any better. This is beyond what we could see, here or even think. God becoming man. <laughs> this is not a story that you can truly believe and understand and be bored with at the same time. This is not a story that can be repeated or sung or taught enough. We cannot afford to make this story normal. We need to be struck year after year with the wonder of it all. And that's the heart of this Advent series. We want to step back into first century Judea. We want to see this story with fresh eyes from the perspective of the people who lived it. And we want to peel back the curtain of mystery and see the glory of God in Jesus Christ for ourselves. We want to behold. And we're going to do this by walking through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, you may know, is one of two Gospels, including Matthew, that lays out for us the Christmas story where Matthew focuses on Joseph and his side of the story. Luke focuses on Mary and and her perspective. So that's where we'll spend these next four weeks of Advent, leading up to our Christmas Eve services. We're going to have a 4 o'clock family service right here. And then we have our big classic service at 11 p.m. at the Antioch campus. So we're building up to that. And today in this first passage, similar to my story five years ago with the coffee cup, we're going to see two people receive unexpected news About pregnancy. So let's walk through our text together, piece by piece, and then at the end we'll see what it means for us today. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Let's start in verses 5 through 7. Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Luke introduces us to two people in this story. You got Zechariah, who was a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. And he tells us they were both godly people who knew the Lord. This doesn't mean they were perfect, but it means they were a part of the faithful remnant in Israel who trusted God. But we see here that They've not had an easy life. Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth cannot have children. And and not only that, but they're past the point where that's even possible. I know some of you probably have dealt with the difficulty of infertility. We've walked through that with some of our friends and family. Desiring a a child and not being able to have one, that's really difficult. Especially in this time when there was great shame around being a woman who couldn't produce a child. So Elizabeth, she would have been looked down on, despised, not just for being a woman, but being, for being a childless woman. And yet this is the exact situation that we see God use time and time again in the Bible. And it's interesting that several times when God is going to do something great, he uses the infertility and sorrow of a woman to perform a miracle and bring new life into the world. Think about it. We see it in the Old Testament with Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. And now we see it happen again. This is is a sign. God is connecting these dots for us to show us that he is about to again do something new and miraculous. Luke also wants us to see here the historical context of this passage. He says these were the days of Herod, who was the so-called king of Judea. He was really a figurehead of sorts. He was placed there by the Roman Empire to crack down on the Jewish people, collect their taxes, and make sure that they had political peace at all costs. So Luke is making sure we understand that this is a time of political turmoil and hopelessness for the nation of Israel. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the day when God's Messiah would come and make all things right again. They were looking for a Savior who would destroy their enemies and set up a great kingdom here on earth. And yet, they felt more oppressed and hopeless than ever. That's the situation we are looking into Now, so with that in mind, let's keep going. Verses 8 through 10. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, we need a little context here as to what's going on. The temple, you may know, is obviously the center of religious significance for the Jewish people. This was where they came to bring their offerings and their prayers to God. And as a priest, Zechariah, he had a really important job in the temple. priests of Israel were divided into 24 different divisions, and each division would serve at the temple two different weeks of the year. So this was Zechariah's chosen week to serve, to be there in that place. And, And one of the things the priests would do is they would go into the temple and they would burn incense. And that would symbolize the prayers going up before God. But performing that task, being the guy that got to go in there and do that, was a very special honor. It was chosen by Lot. And because there were so many priests, you were expected to only get to do it once in your whole life. And this was Zechariah's time. He got picked. This was the moment. Big, big deal. The top of his career. He walks into the temple. Everybody's outside praying. He's probably a little nervous about it. And this is when the unexpected happens. Look at verses 11 through 17. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, that's pretty unexpected, right? It was not normal for an angel to appear in the temple when the priests burn incense. Despite what we may think by reading the Bible, angelic visits to people were not typical. And this angel has some pretty interesting news. He says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. We obviously know now he's speaking of John the Baptist, and he's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to bring joy to the people. And most importantly, did you see what he said? He's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was John's mission and purpose to lead the way to prepare the people for Jesus' coming. He was the final act before the Savior came on the scene. So, How would you respond to this unexpected news? It's a lot going through your mind, I would imagine. I'm guessing you and I would be a little freaked out. But notice how Zechariah responds. Look at verses 18 through 25. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years, which is a nice way of calling your wife old. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Here we have two very different responses to this surprising news. Zechariah doesn't believe. He doubts. He doesn't see how this could possibly happen. And so the angel makes him mute, which is partially a punishment for him, but also partially a a sign of that this was going to happen. But notice Elizabeth, she seems to have a different response. She believes, she accepts what God has done for her. And Zechariah and Elizabeth begin to prepare for the birth of their unexpected baby. And now Luke is going to switch scenes. He's going to take us to another story. It's a similar story, but with some key differences. Look at verses 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Just like the first story, we have an unexpected visit from the angel Gabriel to announce the birth of a new child. But this time, it's not going to be pregnancy in old age. It's the opposite. It's the pregnancy of a virgin. We know that Mary's virginity is significant because Luke mentions it over and over. He wants to signify this incredible miracle that's going to happen. The significance of this miracle speaks to the significance of the baby to be born. So just like the first story, we see this baby is going to be a really big deal. But it's clear the first baby will be pointing to this one. It's the second baby that we've all been waiting for. And there's all this important language about how this Jesus, he's going to fulfill all these promises of the Old Testament. He's the Son of God, and he'll sit on the throne of David, and his kingdom will have no end. For us, these may seem like cool titles, but the people who were steeped in the Old Testament world, These were like lightning bolts going off in their minds. I mean, they would have heard this and they would have recognized that this baby is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one we've been waiting for. And yet his mother is an unknown virgin, a young girl who would have been between 13 and 15 years old. That's when girls typically became betrothed or engaged to their husbands in this time. Mary's very young. She's planning to get married. She's trying to figure out life. And now she finds out she's going to carry and give birth to the most important person to ever live, God in human flesh. And look how she responds, verses 34 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. She's a virgin. Things don't work like that. But the angel tells her that nothing is impossible with God. And even though she has some questions, she responds differently from Zechariah. At the end, she seems to trust. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. So in each of these stories, we have an unexpected pregnancy announcement. Two babies being born in miraculous, unusual circumstances. Two baby boys who've been called to play huge roles in God's story of salvation. And yet, we have two people receiving these announcements who are in very different situations. And their differing situations illustrate for us the struggle that we often have when it comes to expectations of God. See, we often limit God and doubt what He's able to do. And therefore, we we miss out on all that God wants to do in and through us, even as Christians. Sometimes we struggle with having low expectations of God. So I want to close out our message this morning by showing you from this story two reasons we often have low expectations of God. Here's the first. Number one, cynicism. Cynicism lowers expectations of God. What does that word mean? What is cynicism? Cynicism is defined this way. It is doubt or disbelief in the professed motives, sincerity, and goodness of others. Cynicism is often accompanied by mistrust and pessimism. It's suspicious of people and it it pretends to be all real and authentic. But cynicism is always critiquing and never enjoying. At the heart of cynicism is disbelief. And this translates over to our spiritual lives too. I became convicted of my own cynical attitude a few years ago when I first read Paul Miller's book. It's called A Praying Life. It's the book I've been teaching through on Sunday nights here at church, and Paul Miller, he spends multiple chapters talking about cynicism because he believes it's the biggest roadblock that we face today with prayer. He says cynicism is the spirit of our age today. It's so common, we don't even notice it. In fact, we're actually shocked when we meet someone who's not cynical and skeptical about everything. And for a Christian, this is a serious problem. Because cynicism is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to have, which is childlike faith. Whereas the Bible calls us to have faith, hope, and love, cynicism causes us to have distrust, doubt, and bitterness. I got to tell you, I struggle with this. I don't know about you, but I've seen some things in my life. (laughs) I've been burned by people. I've been lied to and betrayed. I've been disappointed. And I think that's where our cynicism comes from. We don't start out this way. Little kids are not cynical. They're the opposite. They, They believe everything you say, and as long as you give them candy, they'll be happy. But as life goes on, bad things happen. We get hurt. We get dealt a difficult hand. And we begin to harden our hearts. We stop trusting and believing and hoping. And I think this is what we see play out in Zechariah's life. He had two reasons to be cynical. First was his lack of a child. Again, I know some of you have been down this road struggling with infertility or miscarriage or loss of a child. I can only imagine the amount of disappointment and bitterness that Zechariah and Elizabeth wrestled with after growing into old age and God never giving them a baby. Prayer after prayer, month after month, begging God, and yet it hadn't happened for them. So when the angel tells Zechariah he's going to have a child, after all this time, after all these years, he just can't believe it. Maybe in his younger years he would have believed and trusted this angel, but not this time. He is not putting his heart out there again to be crushed. But there's something bigger going on here. There's more to this story than just Zechariah and Elizabeth. The nation of Israel as a whole was struggling with doubt and bitterness. This is the end of a period of time called the 400 silent years. Because during these 400 years, between the Old Testament and the New, there were no prophets from God. There were no words from the Lord. Think about that. Entire generations of people lived and died without ever hearing from a prophet or seeing a miracle. For them, it was as if God had finally abandoned his people. Add on top of this, the Roman rule over them, Herod's harshness and oppression, and there was very little hope. These were cynical days. So Zechariah was not expecting a child in his old age. He wasn't expecting to be visited by an angel. <laughs> and the people weren't expecting a visit from God. They weren't expecting this John the Baptist to be much of anything. Yet this is the situation that God enters into. This is the moment he determines to do his greatest work. And we see this throughout the whole Bible. Think about this for a second. This is God's playbook. After hundreds of years of slavery and exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt displaying his power. With their backs against the wall, the Egyptian army's coming to kill them. He literally parts a sea. Think about Gideon. You remember Gideon? When he had 32,000 men ready to fight, God said, nope, that's too many. Okay, 10,000 men? Nope, still too many. 300 men? Okay, now you're ready. Now you can go fight an army of 100,000 people and win. Think about David. What about David? The entire army of Israel is shaking in their boots. Nobody wants to fight Goliath. So who does God raise up to do it? David. The shepherd boy. Does he need a sword? Nope. Let's give him a slingshot. This happens over and over in the Bible. God enters into hopeless, impossible situations where no one thinks anything can be done. And he shows up. And he does the unexpected. God delights in the unexpected because it brings him glory. It more intensely displays the power and might that he has. It demonstrates his unique ability for his people. The power, the love that he has. And So here's what this means for us. We cannot out-expect God. Yes, bad things happen. Life stinks sometimes, but there is no situation that is too far gone for God. He's always working. And he can do immeasurably more than we can even ask or think or imagine. So we have to fight this cynicism in our hearts and choose to believe and behold the unexpected. It's the first reason we often have low expectations of God. Here's the second. Number two, inexperience lowers expectations of God. Sometimes we don't expect much of God because we simply haven't had to yet. That was the case with Mary. Like I mentioned, one of the things we often miss about Jesus' mother was that she was likely a teenager. That was the normal age. A young girl would become betrothed, and we don't see anything that would indicate differently here. She'd not lived much life. And we learn of no other challenges or struggles that she dealt with. By all indications, she'd lived a typical first-century Jewish life. She is portrayed as being faithful and believing and trusting in God, but her response shows that she has some questions about being a virgin mother. That's understandable. So the angel, he doesn't scold her, but Gabriel teaches her this important message. He says nothing is impossible with God. I'm going to guess she learned that lesson pretty well. We also need to learn the same lesson and hear the same message because for many of us, We have low expectations of God because we have not personally experienced his power. We have not personally walked through a difficult season and felt the sustaining peace of God. We've not prayed through tears and learned to trust in his goodness for ourselves. So here's the question for us. How do we remedy this? How do we fix low expectations of God? whether it be from cynicism or inexperience, how do we learn to hope deeply and have big mountain-moving faith? Maybe you're like Zechariah and you've been through some stuff. And you struggle to see how God could do anything to fix the situation you're in. Maybe like you're like Mary and you just haven't followed God that closely for that long. And you wonder if the God of the Bible we read about still does those things today. Here's the solution. It's one word right from the title of our message. Behold. Behold. It's not a word we use in our everyday conversation. It sounds kind of like an old English word, but but to behold means to look, to gaze upon something intently. That's the key to the Christian life. It's to behold. We cannot muster up in ourselves more hope. We cannot will ourselves to greater faith, but we can choose where we look We can choose what we dwell on, what we fix our hearts on, and what we must choose to look to the Lord. That's what the angel calls Zechariah and Mary to do. If you look back over these verses, he says over and over, he says, Behold, behold, behold. Don't look at your age, Zechariah. Don't look at Israel's crummy situation. Don't look at your youthfulness, your inexperience, Mary. Behold a God with whom nothing is impossible. Behold a God who delights in doing the unexpected. It's a verse I love from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, he's talking about what Jesus has done for us and the New Covenant and how, like Moses, we can now see the glory of God. And listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How are we transformed? By looking within? No. By looking at our circumstances? No. By looking at the world? No. We are transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord. This is the key to having strong faith in a God who can exceed all expectations. Behold, look to Him. Fix your heart on his word and on what Christ has done for you in the gospel. Turn your mind and your heart there again and again to the truth that Jesus died and was raised for you. I know the world's messed up. I know life is hard and things aren't the way we thought they would be. And I know even in holiday season, many for many people, it's hard. We think about the people who should be here and aren't. We think about past mistakes and family drama and regret. I know we're cynical, we're doubting, we're struggling. But just for a moment, put that away and behold God. We have a God who does the impossible, who brings life to barren wounds, who sends salvation to sinful people, who send his own son to be born of a young virgin. Behold a God who is here and working now just like he was in Luke chapter 1. He hasn't changed. And he's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's not looking for that super spiritual, perfect person to work in. He's looking to display his glory by working in the most impossible and unexpected way. So behold and see what might God be doing in your midst. What if he's calling you to do something unexpected? What if his plan for you is different from the plan you have for your life? you like me, one of those people who has a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan. You know exactly how everything's going. What if God wants to take all that away and do something different? Think about Zechariah. What if God wants to use your greatest struggle, your darkest past, and bring a blessing to others? Think about Mary. What if God wants to take your greatest fear, throw you in the most impossible situation to make his name known throughout the world? You ready for that? Let's stop this morning as we enter our Advent season. We know things are going to get crazy. It's busy. There's lots going on. We rush here. We rush there. Let's just pause and simply behold, and fix our minds and behold the unexpected.